Hello, hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of She Existed, the podcast wherein I, Ashlyn Romagnoli, share the story of a woman of history and or legend previously unknown to me. This is the first episode, in fact, of season two, which I'm pretty much just saying it's season two because it's a new year. How's 2022 shaping up for you all so far? I'm going to be honest with you. (laughs) On a personal level for me, things are humming along pretty nicely, for which I'm extremely grateful. But as an overall vibe of a year so far, uh, I think we can all agree that 2020 is, well, challenging. Side note, as I am editing, um, you'll notice I accidentally said 2020 is challenging instead of 2022, which is the year it actually is, and I'm leaving it because I think we can also all agree that in some ways this just feels like a really terrible time loop that we are caught in. Woof. Okay, back to the show. I sort of figured from the outset of COVID way back in 2020 that we were looking at at least like a few years of whatever the hell pandemic reality actually is. And I feel like maybe now we've all kind of come to realize that. I mean, 2020 was just weird. 2021 had a lot of hope. Vaccine development, release, etc., etc. And now I think people just don't know what to think. Because Omicron is here, and it's so damn infectious. And, like, I don't, I, I actually don't really get why people are kind of laissez-faire about it. Like, well, we're just gonna have to get it and move on. Because, like, I sure as shit don't want to get it. We have no idea what this all looks like long-term. And, like, I don't think this means, like, giving up entirely on living life. But, like... I don't know, doesn't kill you to wear an N95 or get a booster. Get your boosters, kids. Anyway, I have a special treat for you today. Well, I hope it's a special treat. Rather, it's it's something a little out of the box, a little unusual for She Existed, that I've put together with love and care for my friend Sally, who is actually laid up with COVID right now and is finding it hard to do anything but rest and listen to podcasts. A couple days ago, she told me she's been really into true crime. And while there are like 80 billion podcasts who focus mainly on that, so who am I to (laughs) make an attempt at a true crime podcast? But I realized that I actually have some pretty unusual knowledge about one of the very first instances of true crime mania. And it might make an interesting, if unusual, She Existed episode. So you may or may not know, depending on if we know each other in real life, that I have a master's degree in sociology from the London School of Economics, which is actually how I met Sally on our first day of class. So, uh, a decade ago now? Yikes. Um, But even if you know that, you probably don't know that I wrote my dissertation about basically Victorian Craigslist. I mean, the official synopsis of my dissertation is like how individuals through history utilize social platforms to find relationship, blah, 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 blah. But basically what you need to know is that 100, even 400 years ago, people published missed connections and other types of ads in good old fashioned print papers, just like we do on things like Craigslist today. Or maybe not Craigslist anymore. I wrote my dissertation like a decade ago, so I guess there are new venues for that. But anyway, um, but instead of like uh, ISO, hot vegan chicken sprouts with the pink hairband, it was more like to the lady in yellow whom I had the honor of helping from her carriage in front of the theater on Thursday last, la 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 la. Um, I could talk about this for ages because it's so fucking cool. But I'm going to move it along 
focus on this episode of the podcast. Basically, I tell you all this to say I spent a summer reading old Victorian newspapers, and I came across the account of an incredible old murder case. And I came across it because the murderer had actually used newspaper ads in the past. So this is called the Red Barn Murder. Now, murder itself was a very hot topic in the Victorian era. In fact, the argument can and has been made that in many ways, the way we conceive of murder was invented in this time. Certainly, the idea of a murder occurring and then someone writing an over 400-page volume detailing pretty much everything about the case would have been very unusual even a few decades or centuries before the period I'm talking about. And it's in this kind of intensely detailed account that we have the seeds of what we now know as true crime. So I have actually read a great deal of the aforementioned 400-page account about the Red Barn murders that was written by one Jay Curtis, a journalist who actually befriended the murderer in his final months during his trial. And it's an absolutely riveting read in and of itself. Like, I love the way Victorians write. It is so intense. Um, everything that I am about to tell you is accurate to the best of my knowledge and research. But what's a true crime podcast without a little mystery? Because of the nature of this case, and because I naturally want to focus on the women involved, I'm going to invert the standard operating procedure of discovering a murder victim and then exploring the mystery of who done it. In this case, I'm going to tell you who done it. One William Quarter born in 1803 in Suffolk, England. What I'm leaving as a mystery for you, dear listeners, for just a little while, is just who died by William's hand. His steady, dutiful wife, Mary Moore, who kept him from the sordid and adventurous life he'd seemed destined to live. Or Maria Martin, the clever and beautiful but scandalous mistress whom he simply couldn't seem to get over, despite his attempts to lead a respectable life. At the end of the day, this is the story of two very different young women whose lives were utterly ruined by their connection to this one unscrupulous man, William Corder. This is the story of the Red Barn Murder. She existed, true crime edition. Mary Moore first encountered William Corder through a matrimonial advertisement he took out in the Morning Herald and other papers, which garnered hundreds of responses. As I alluded to before, these ads were not uncommon in this time, though they did tend to be anonymous. Even back then, there was a bit of stigma around such matters, kind of like how we talk about online dating. Here is the text of that fateful advertisement. Matrimony. A private gentleman aged 24, entirely independent, whose disposition is not to be exceeded, has lately lost the chief of his family by the hand of Providence, which has occasioned discord among the remainder, under circumstances most disagreeable to relate. To any female of respectability who would study for domestic comfort and willing to confide her future happiness in one every day qualified to render the marriage state desirable, as the advertiser is in affluence, the lady must have the power of some property, which may remain in her own possession." Many very happy marriages have taken place through means similar to this now resorted to, and it is hoped no one will answer this through impertinent curiosity. 
But should this meet the eye of any agreeable lady, who feels desirous of meeting with a sociable, tender, kind, and sympathizing companion, they will find this advertisement worthy of notice. Honor and secrecy may be relied upon. Woo! So you would think, given how long it took to set type, they'd be less long-winded back then, but no. Basically, what William is describing is that his father died, leaving his family in disarray, and he feels the need to find a wife to hopefully take up the position as head of household. Um, it is very interesting, as a little side note, to note that he talks when he says, it is hoped no one will answer this through impertinent curiosity, is basically the Victorian way of saying, serious replies only. <laughs> but anyway, so he puts out this ad, and tons and tons of women respond. By all accounts, Mary Moore would have been considered a perfectly fine catch as a wife. She's described as being kind, generous, and committed to her religion. Yet her responding to a matrimonial ad does imply that she was having at least a little bit of trouble attracting someone in her own personal life. So imagine her relief when she was finally able to find a life partner. Remember, this is a time in which, if you weren't independently wealthy, being a single woman was incredibly hard. I mean, even if you were independently wealthy, it was still hard. So imagine her pride when she'd beaten out dozens, if not hundreds, of other eligible bachelorettes for this self-described prize. She probably felt she could finally relax, safe in the comfort of honorable matrimony and an honest living, enjoying newlywed life and looking forward to her future. Mary Moore married and set up a business with her new husband, William Corder. They ran a charming little boarding house and settled in for a perfectly normal life. But all was not as well as Mary Moore may have hoped. You see, William Corder had been long known in his community as a complete scoundrel of whom his local constable exclaimed, quote, I'll be damned if he will not be hung some of these days. But how could Mary Moore know that? She'd married him in good faith, knowing only the side of himself presented in that fateful advertisement. Indeed, on that note, we can look at the commentary by Jay Curtis on the ad that I just read to you. Quote, When we look at the character which Quarter gives of himself, vis-a-vis -vis whose disposition is not to be exceeded, and a sociable, tender, kind, and sympathizing companion— and combine it with what we know of him before and since, the heart sickens at the recital, and our astonishment at the whole of his nefarious conduct is only equaled by our disgust." End quote. And what Mary certainly couldn't have known was William's long history with the other woman in this murder mystery, Maria Martin. I know, their names are very similar, and M was obviously a very popular letter at this time. So I will do my very best to keep things as clear as possible for you, dear listener. So, let's talk a little about Maria. One good thing to know about Maria Martin is that she led a life fairly typical for a country woman of her time through about the age of 18. She was quite clever, curious, and charming. Jay Curtis says she was possessed of, quote, a very retentive memory, and her mind deeply imbued with a desire to acquire useful knowledge. There is every reason to believe that, if she had received proper tuition, she would have made an accomplished woman. She had a handsome face, a fine form and figure, and moreover, a superior address accompanied with a modest demeanor. 
it cannot excite much surprise that she should have been beset by admirers. End quote. Who wouldn't find such a woman appealing? And indeed, even before William found himself caught up in Maria Martin's charms, many others did as well. When Maria was 18, one unnamed gentleman seduced her and took what was, at the time, an incredibly important virtue for a woman to maintain, her virginity. Somewhat generously for this time, Curtis actually displays some empathy for Maria in this instance. Quote, Nor when we reflect upon what human nature is, does it appear remarkable that she, an artless, inexperienced girl, should have listened to that voice of flattery. End quote. So he's basically exonerating her from blame in this, that some asshole came along, seduced her, and she kind of helplessly just went along with it, which kind of puts her in a victim role, but whatever. Anyway, the point is, Maria is in this entanglement, and it is at that point that her life takes a turn away from the ordinary country life. After her first lover left, William Corder's own brother had a son with her, a son who sadly died in infancy, and she then had another child with another man, although fortunately this child did survive, although the man did not stick around. The fact is, at this time, it was difficult for a woman to do much in and of herself to better her life circumstances, particularly if she were the object of scandal. Certainly the best option available to Maria, as it was for Mary, would have been to marry well, which should have been possible for her given her beauty and accomplishments. But after bearing children to two men who both refused to marry her, she must have been in somewhat dire straits when she finally turned her attentions on William, the younger brother of her last love and the villain of our story. As I mentioned earlier, William was no stranger to less than savory behavior. By the time he engaged in a relationship with Maria Martin, he'd already stolen livestock, forged checks, had earned the nickname Foxy at school. But despite his own failings, it would have come as little shock to anyone that he would avoid marrying a woman tainted by scandals such as Maria. Although many, many records indicate that he continually promised her father and the rest of her family over the course of many months that he would marry her, one time even referring to her as his wife already. But of course, we already know that William actually then married Mary, the woman who answered his ad, and so Maria was doomed to disappointment in that regard, even after she gave birth to the married William's child in 1827. So yes, even though William was already entangled with Maria, he still chose to put out an ad to find a different and more respectable wife, married her, and then proceeded to continue his relationship with Maria. They actually have a child together, but very sadly, their child ultimately died in infancy just a few weeks after he was born. Now, I know it really sounds like Maria has had a really rough life, and she sort of has in her adult years, but she actually still had a pretty good relationship with her family. So she was tragic and neglected in many ways, but she was fortunate to have a very positive relationship with her stepmother, one Anne Martin, who later gives really invaluable context and evidence in this trial. 
You see, Anne was often present when William visited the Martin family home. And remember, as I said before, he knew Maria's family and had long promised to make an honest woman out of her, as it were. Six weeks after their baby dies, William shows up at the Martins' cottage with news that Maria was set to be prosecuted for bearing illegitimate children, the latest one of which was, of course, his. But he says he has a plan. He says he's going to meet her at the local landmark of the Red Barn, where they would then flee to Ipswich to marry. But of course, there's just one not-so-little problem. William already has a wife. What to do, what to do. So this is the question that I've been dangling over your head since the beginning of this podcast. Which woman would be the victim of William's callousness? I mean, arguably both, but which one did he murder? Did he murder the gentle, but perhaps to William, dull Mary, his wife, freeing him up to elope with his longtime lover who is potentially facing jail time for bearing his child out of wedlock? Or did William feel the need to get rid of the vivacious but scandal-ridden Maria, allowing him to resume a normal, respectable life with his wife Mary? Well, I'm sorry to tell you that when Maria Martin headed off to the Red Barn to meet her lover, it was the last anyone would ever see of her, at least on this mortal plane. I'll tell you what I mean. Here's where the story really starts to get bizarre. So... After William and Maria allegedly elope, her loving family tries several times to get in touch with her, resulting in half-hearted rebuttals from William. Maria was ill and couldn't write, or they were living far away, or they couldn't come home out of shame. But before Christmas of 1827, Anne, Maria's stepmother, actually began having dreams about her beloved stepdaughter and the Red Barn, wherein the ghost of Maria told her she had been murdered at the Red Barn. For some time, Anne avoided telling anybody about her dreams, as she feared being labeled as superstitious. But eventually, she did share her thoughts with her husband, Maria's father. Although he was highly concerned about his daughter, as she'd been missing at this point for several months, with only news from William claiming they were married, Maria's father was skeptical, But once she decided to share her dreams, Anne was determined to have them investigated. So finally, on April 19, 1828, Anne convinced her husband, Maria's father, to investigate further, and the truth of her horrifying dreams was quickly confirmed. When he and a companion showed up at the barn, quote, "...they thought that one part of the earth did not appear so solid as the rest." And, upon examination, they found that the earth was loose and capable of being removed with comparative ease. After removing the surface to the depth of about a foot and a half, they discovered something like a human body wrapped in a sack, and a green silk handkerchief protruded through the sack, which the putridity of the corpse had completely rotted in that part. The green silk handkerchief belonged to William Corder, and was that in which Maria left her father's house. End quote. Later, when the police investigated further, they confirmed that they found a skeleton with Maria's hair color and a comparable missing tooth, as well as a green handkerchief around her neck that would later be confirmed as belonging to William. 
Anne later recalled that William suggested Maria dress up as a man to facilitate their secret elopement, which explained why she was wearing his handkerchief. The trial and subsequent conviction held a shadow over the summer of 1828 for the small town of Polstead. Evidence arose of William fraudulently stealing money Maria's second beau had sent her to assist with their child's upbringing. His character was widely defamed. Maria's 10-year-old brother recalled seeing William with a loaded pistol, and indeed, a gunshot wound to her body was a clear potential cause of death. But a number of other wounds made it difficult to ascertain a precise cause of death. A sharp instrument had been driven into her eye, and of course, the handkerchief around her neck suggested possible strangulation. The prosecution left nothing to chance and indicted William on nine charges. William initially pleaded not guilty, stating, quote, I have been described as a monster who, while meditating becoming the husband of this girl, Mary Moore, to whom I was evincing an affectionate attachment, was actually premeditating and plotting the perpetration of this horrid crime. It is natural you should come to this trial with feelings of prejudice, but I implore you to banish from your minds all the horrible accusations and give your verdict on evidence alone. That's from the Times Archive, August 9th, 1828. He is shocked, shocked, I say, that anyone could think a man capable of wooing one woman while planning to murder another. Hmm. What William claimed actually happened is that he had left Maria behind at the Red Barn, telling her he was leaving her for good this time, and heard a gunshot as he was walking away, indicating that she committed suicide. Fearing being framed for her murder, he claimed that he decided to bury her corpse instead of alerting the authorities. The jury needed very little time to convict, and William was sentenced to be hanged on August 11, 1828. And only at this point did William confess after a serious campaign by his wife, Mary Moore, who was greatly concerned with his immortal soul. It appears that Mary Moore always believed her husband was guilty of the murder, so perhaps she did realize something of his character during their brief time as a married couple. During and after the trial, she urged him to confess, which he did after conviction, although he claimed it was an accidental death, not a premeditated murder. William sent her these following final words. Quote, My life's loved companion, I am now a-going to the fatal scaffold, and I have a lively hope of obtaining mercy and pardon for my numerous offenses. May heaven bless and protect you through this transitory veil of misery, and which, when we meet again, may it be in the regions of everlasting bliss. Adieu, my love, forever adieu. In less than two hours I hope to be in heaven. My last prayer is that God will endue you with patience, fortitude, and resignation to his will. Rest assured, his wise providence work all things together for good. The awful sentence which has been passed upon me, in which I am now summoned to answer, I confess is very just, and I die in peace with all mankind, truly grateful for the kindnesses I have received from Mr. Orridge and the religious instruction and consolation from the Reverend Mr. Stocking, who has promised to take my last words to you. End quote. 
He wrote this note on a page torn out of a book that she had gifted him that year for his birthday. An account of Mary Moore at the time describes her as seriously indisposed after what must have been a traumatic year, beginning at a church wedding under false pretenses and ending at a gallows. Indeed, as Jay Curtis notes, quote, to be severed from those we love is exceedingly distressing under ordinary circumstances of dissolution. But who can tell the writhings of the heart when the thread of connubial joys and attachments is severed by the hand of the public executioner? End quote. At this point, however, her concern was only for her husband William's soul. Quote, How pathetically did she, when sobs did not prevent utterance, entreat him to be earnest in his applications for mercy? Corder felt the force of her observations and pledged himself to profit, even in his dying hour, by her kind and unaffected exhortations. End quote. The effect that this case had on both the general public at the time and it and cases like its effect on us today really cannot be overstated. In the case of the former, how it affected the world in its own time, well, the case was consistently covered in the news throughout the summer of 1828, and people were absolutely fascinated by it. Following William's execution, a series of macabre, uh, how should I put it, details were preserved. At the time, phrenology, which is the study of the structure of the skull to determine personality, was trending in medical circles. To this day, a copy of William Corder's skull can be found at Moises Hall Museum in Barrie St. Edmunds. His death mask, horrifying copies of his face at death, also still exist. His scalp was also kept and preserved with stubble and the right ear still attached. And perhaps most grotesquely, his skin was tanned and used to bind an account of the murder. An account that, incidentally, also has a handwritten joke that proves the public interest in the murder. In Shakespeare's Macbeth, there is a line in which Duncan asks, is execution done on Cotter? Which sounds quite similar to Corder, William's last name. So according to the account written in the book Bound in His Own Skin, there was a performance of Macbeth happening in Drury Lane at the time of the execution. And apparently, when this line was uttered, is execution done on Cotter, a member of the audience shouted back at the stage, yes, he was hung this morning at Barry." a direct reference to William's death and burial at Barry St. Edmunds. Dang, right? <laughs> In terms of how this case and other high-profile murder cases like it affect us today, well, without it, we simply wouldn't really have what we now think of as true crime. I alluded to this at the beginning of the episode, and I'm just going to expand a little bit now. So although violence and murder certainly existed before this time period, the Victorian era saw, for all intents and purposes, the creation of the modern murder from a conceptual standpoint. The consolidation of individuals into cities, the rise of organized policing, the ability to share information regularly with the broader public through newspapers, all contributed to the rise of what we now would think of as true crime, which I would define as details of horrific crimes that are recounted in such a way, whether a podcast or a 400-page book, to be as entertaining and enthralling as possible to the audience. 
Jay Curtis's account of the Red Barn murder is a direct ancestor to today's true crime TV shows and podcasts. Incidentally, there is a fantastic book related to all of this by Judith Flanders called The Invention of Murder. Definitely check it out. It's awesome. Speaking of book titles, the book I referenced the most in this one, the one by Jay Curtis, I didn't tell you the name of that book before because it would have spoiled the mystery of who had been murdered. But I will share it with you now, and damn, it is a doozy. The full title is An Authentic and Faithful History of the Mysterious Murder of Maria Martin with a full development of all the extraordinary circumstances which led to the discovery of her body in the Red Barn. To which is added the trial of William Corder, taken at large and shorthand specifically for this work, with an account of his execution, dissection, etc., and many interesting particulars relative to the village of Polstead and its vicinity, the prison correspondence of Corder, and 53 letters in answer to his advertisement for a wife. The whole compiled and arranged with upwards of 300 explanatory notes by J. Curtis, and embellished with many highly interesting engravings. Ooh, highly interesting engravings, you say. So, there you have it. The Red Barn Murder, one of the very first examples of true crime mania. And as ever, I simply want to say that Mary Moore and Maria Martin existed. Thank you for indulging in this very special episode of She Existed, True Crime Edition. Get well soon, Sally. 